You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started, this week's guest, just an amazing individual holding one of the highest military positions in all of government. Very excited to talk to this individual. We happen to be his 100th podcast since departing the military. So I'm very excited. We'll get to that in a moment. First, just a few reminders. One, our partners over at Killcliff want you to get their Killcliff Killer Cream Sickle, Cliff Sickle uh, CBD Clean Energy Drinks. Uh, guys, Killcliff, great partner of the show. Again, founded by a Navy SEAL. Uh, proceeds going to the Navy SEAL Foundation, but I use Killcliff all the time. I use it for my pre-workout, my post-workout. Check them out, killcliff.com. Uh, just great organization, great company, and certainly uh, American-made, American-founded, and veteran-founded. So check them out online, killcliff.com. Download that Killcliff TV app because you can get all of our podcasts there as well. If you don't go to our YouTube channel, uh, hazardground.com, and YouTube there where you can get all the video episodes. You can also get them on the Killcliff TV app as well. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazardground at Hazardground Podcast. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. If you're doing some holiday shopping, maybe even some post-holiday shopping, go to hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your shopping right there. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we will donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also works on your smartphone, redirects you right to the app, so your credit card information is saved. Very convenient, very easy, and you get to support veterans charities just by doing some Amazon shopping. And please continue to leave us Apple reviews, Apple ratings and reviews. Subscribe, rate and review this podcast. We continue to grow, work our way up the top 100 Apple podcasts. We can't do it without your help. So please leave us a review. It doesn't have to be a long one. Just tell us why you love the show. And uh, also guest suggestions, we take them there as well. All right, on to this week's guest because I'm super excited. He is the third, or he was, I should say, the third senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, And this is a position where you are the principal advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the secretary of defense. He spent over 37 years in uniform, has five combat deployments, including uh, other deployments all around the world, and spent the better part of his career visiting troops all over the globe. Uh, And after his military career, he opened his own consulting firm, PHE Hard Consulting, and now also serves as the strategic advisor and brand ambassador for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Hiring Our Heroes Foundation. And he is SEAC retired John Wayne Troxell, joining us on the hazard ground. It is a lengthy title, but well-deserved, and we certainly appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's an honor to be here today. Absolutely. Again, SEAC retired, uh, SEAC being senior enlisted advisor to the chairman. Um, you know, it, it's hard to encapsulate 37 years of your career, but, you know, immediately, uh, you don't ever like go into the military hoping to be a SEAC. Maybe some people hope to make E8, maybe make Sergeant Major. You know, um, do you ever wonder, you know, and look back at the chain of events that got you to that rank and go, man, I was just blessed? Or, or, or did at some point, did it become a plan or at least a desire to get to that level? Mark, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, first of all, um, I joined the military because 
you know, I, I didn't know what to do with my life. I grew up in Davenport, Iowa and, you know, had a loving home and everything, but I really had no purpose or direction until I saw older guys in my neighborhood coming back from recruit training, whether, you know, the army or the Marine Corps. And I saw the confidence they had and the sinewy muscularity they had and how they walked with their head held high. And I said, you know what? I want some of that. And so I chose to join the army. And initially I was just going to do four years. And, uh, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a young private is uh, a month after I got to my first duty station, I met a young lady and fell madly in love with her. And she happens to still be my wife today, uh, Sandra of 38 years. And that kind of changed the trajectory for me because now I had responsibility a year after um, we got married, we had our first child and now I had a, a wife and a child I had to take care of. So I knew that I had to have structure in my life and I had to be able to take care of my family and being a soldier just kind of came easy to me. You know, uh, it, it was just, it, you know, it was what I, I thought was grown up to be. And so I decided to stay in there. And then I said, you know, I'm going to make the most out of this because I realized that the more I performed at a high level, the more I would get promoted faster and the more I would be able to take care financially of my family better. And then at a certain point, I started falling in, uh, in love with the responsibility and being able to take care of others and everything. And then that, after that, I just set goal after goal and never realizing that I would be the SEAC one day, but I said, I'm going to be the best soldier that I can be. And, you know, when I hit 20 years, I thought, okay, I'm going to prepare for retirement now, but little did I realize I was just barely over halfway through my career and I still had 17 more years to go. So I think it was a little of both that kept me going. And, and I was prepared to leave the military if they were done with me, but I kept getting opportunities. So I feel like I was really blessed to get to where I got to. And again, the, the SEAC is the most senior enlisted member of the United States Armed Forces. But when you joined in the mid 80s, I mean, you know, we're in a relative peacetime sort of post Vietnam sort of lull, if you will. Was combat yeah. ever in your your like even mind at that point in time, or was it just sort of more of a job slash career you got into for all the reasons you just mentioned? Yeah, it was, you know, as you, as you mentioned, we were a peacetime military. Mm -hmm. I joined and never thinking I was going to go to combat. And, you know, a year after I was in, you know, Grenada happened, Operation Urgent Fury, but that was really, you know, the Ranger Regiment, the 82nd Airborne Division, Special Operations Forces, um, both from the Army and the Navy and everything. And I thought, well, I'm a conventional guy. I'm a general purpose kind of guy. Um, I don't think I, I'm going to be going to combat. But, you know, when I, I left my first duty station, Fort Bliss, Texas, went to Germany to finish out my first enlistment. And all of a sudden, I got enamored with uh, uh, being a paratrooper and being an, uh, an airborne ranger and everything. And I so my wife wanted me to stay in the military, even though I wanted to get out initially. Um, and so I stayed in and I said, hey, but I want to go to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And we went there. And the minute I got to Fort Bragg, things changed. Now, my first four years, I was in heavy mechanized units uh, that were we were kind of, you know, just doing the standoff with uh, the Soviet Union, you know, in East Germany and, and West Germany and everything. But I never thought we were going to go to war until I got to Fort Bragg in the 82nd. And that's all we talked about 
was going to war and serving on division ready force one and everything. And, uh, and the training was all geared to, you know, for combat that we may have to in 18 hours or less have to go and fight. And that came to fruition in 1989 with Operation Just Cause, and that's where I got my baptism by fire. Now, that's the one in Panama, Just Cause, uh, not, yes, not sir. That, just yeah. so non-military folks remember uh, Desert Storm doesn't kick off until 1990. And, you know, the the operation to get Manuel Noriega was, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, snatch and grab type deal. But it was the highest of the high, you know, folks who were who were involved in that. Um, when you leave that operation, um, you know, does it sort of feed into your sense of what you thought combat was going to be like? Because there wasn't a whole lot of fighting in in Grenada, what we've seen, comparatively speaking, to today. Yeah, um, it was because, uh, you know, when I exited the airplane, um, first of all, when we were, you know, on short final heading into Torrijos Airport, you know, to conduct the combat jump. And the Rangers were jumping on Takuman Airfield, which was just north. The airfields were adjacent to each other. The reports coming back was, you know, the heavy drop aircraft were receiving anti-aircraft fire. And so, you know, and, and then we were jumping at 500 foot altitude. So that was things, you know, which is what our combat jumps normally are. And then when the doors came open and you could see tracer fire on the ground, that's when it became our reality. And then when we hit the ground, you know, there was sporadic fighting throughout, you know, the first four days. Some of it, in, you know, became heavy. I, I myself, on the night of the 21st of December, was involved. Uh, you know, I was the lead vehicle and we were in a, a, a two-point ambush that hit us, you know. And, and uh, you know, there were some folks that were wounded and everything. Um, we ended up losing four paratroopers out of the division during that operation. But overall, there was only 18 killed in action with a couple hundred wounded. And again, any loss of life is bad. But uh, compared to the numbers that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're right. It's not nearly uh, the numbers, but it was everything that I thought it would be in terms of how we reacted to contact, how we conducted operations and, uh, and, and how we did business. And so I, I guess that three-week combat tour kind of validated, I think, the credentials that we built through our combat simulated training. And I, I told myself when I came out of that, this is the blueprint to be ready for any kind of combat deployment. And as you just mentioned, Desert Storm, seven months after I got back from Panama, I was on my way to Saudi Arabia with Operation Desert Shield and then Desert Storm. So um, that kind of got me into the mindset of being ready to deploy at any time. Was there any part of you that after Grenada and going right to Desert Storm, was there any part of you that sort of thought like, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought. Like, you know, I just I got married. I had a child and I wanted to just provide for my family. And this was more than what I bargained for. Absolutely not. Um, I, you know, it it kind of validated everything that I had been doing, you know, this is kind of like, you know, an NFL player that goes throughout their career and they're preparing themselves every Sunday to play and play and what they're doing and they're working so hard is to get to the Super Bowl, you know, and, and be in that uh, big game and everything. And, and so, you know, that I had the opportunity as part of a peacetime military in 1989 to conduct the combat jump in Panama. Um, 
was one, a blessing, but two, it, uh, it validated why I went to Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne Division to begin with, because I wanted to be part of a unit that had a high esprit de corps and had a great history and was at the cutting edge of most, uh, all of our uh, combat deployments. I hate comparing battles um, because I think there's so much context, but we do it a lot with Iraq and Afghanistan because they were almost two different wars uh, yeah. in the way they were fought and the tactics that were used. But when you compare Grenada to Desert Storm, uh, is it fair to say that Desert Storm was easier? <laughs> Absolutely. My, I saw a lot more combat in Panama uh, than I saw in Desert Storm. Now, remember, when we went to the desert for Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the Iraqis had 430,000 troops in Kuwait and southern Iraq. And back then, you know, as we talked about, you know, near peer kind of fighting and, and decisive action combat, you know, to oust a, a dug in uh, enemy, we had to have a three to one overmatch. So, you know, the number of U.S. coalition forces that were there were just we were going to overwhelm the Iraqis with superior numbers, superior air power, and superior ground combat. So when we crossed the border into southern Iraq and Kuwait, um, you know, we were, we were, we severely outmatched um, the, uh, the Iraqis. And a lot of what I did was follow and support very, very little combat at all or combat engagements. Um, obviously, you know, we, we were prepared at all times because of, you know, the Scud missile threats and, and the long range artillery that the Iraqis had and everything. But uh, it was not the same as the close in direct firefighting that I saw in Panama City, which, as we know, is most, most urban combat is a lot tougher than fighting in an open plain like we were in southern Iraq. Yeah. Um, and. and- Desert Storm goes by quickly, um, and all things considered, obviously, uh, w- w- without much threat and loss of life. Um, when it ends, what are you thinking about what's next for your career and sort of where you're going to go? Obviously, we have this 10-year lull before anything else happens to us. But uh, at, at that point in time, you, you've sort of checked the block, right? You, you've done your, your tough combat. You've done your easy combat. And uh, you've been around for, uh, you know, better part of nine, almost 10 years at this point. So, what are you thinking about where your career is headed at that point in time? Well, I was, uh, because of the pride I had in serving in the 82nd Airborne Division in Just Cause and Desert Storm, I wanted to continue to serve in the division. I wanted to continue to be part of that tip of the sphere that was on any given day, 18 hours or less, you're, you, you could be in the next uh, combat operation. But I knew that you know, for professional development reasons, I had been there for five straight years. I probably, you know, needed to move on. And, and the army did that for me. One, they selected me for Sergeant first class, um, early. And, uh, and so then, then I was reassigned to Germany again. At that point in time, the army not only was going through a major drawdown from desert storm, but also they were looking to get the combat experience and filter it out through the ranks as much as possible. So I found myself in 1992 back in Germany again, this time uh, with uh, the 3rd Infantry Division, but also as uh, 
you know, the former Soviet Union fell. And all of a sudden, there were a lot of those former Soviet countries that were having challenges, especially in places like Kosovo and, and uh, Macedonia and places like that. So now here I was back in Germany uh, as a platoon sergeant now, and I was more focused on, um, you know, kind of deterring, being a deterrent for any kind of uh, provocative action by the Russians or anybody else there and supporting these other countries. So um, I just wanted to continue to excel and I wanted to continue to get become a better leader and I wanted to be ready for whatever was next. And so everything I did then um, for post-combat was related to being ready for combat. You know, my physical fitness, how I trained my platoon, you know, my platoon leader and I, in terms of physical toughness, in terms of marksmanship, in terms of battle drills, all the things, all those fundamentals that blocking and tackling that make us good. And then I also, that was about the point in my career that I realized I had to deliver the why to the troops. Why are we, you know, thinking about, you know, Kosovo, or why are we thinking about, you know, Bosnia-Herzegovina or Macedonia? What's the why? So I knew at that point in time that I had to start understanding the bigger picture. And I started making a point to understand the big picture. And I think as a leader, and especially at the high tactical level, the more you understand operationally and strategically what's going on, you know, and you can deliver that to the troops, the more the troops are going to be ready for whatever they have to do. Because, Mark, you know the deal. You know, if a troop knows what they have to do in combat, especially, they may not like it. But if they know why they're doing it and everything, they'll accept it and they'll go out and get after it. But if they don't know the why, which sometimes happens because leaders aren't delivering it, and then all of a sudden they're like, what am I doing this for? You know, and in the end, they end up fighting for each other because they don't know the bigger picture. We want them to fight for each other, but also we want them to understand what the uh, tactical and operational goals are for the missions we're at. And that's about the time it kicked in for me. And I started realizing that I needed to be that guy to deliver the why to the troops that I was leading. Um, Amazing point, because honestly, it's one of those things where uh, leaders so often tend to get insular and operate in a vacuum, uh, especially when surrounded by other senior leaders. Um, and, and they separate themselves from the ground level uh, where everything happens. And, and truly in combat, I think you've learned that better than any other lesson you, you have ever learned. And even, even those who go to combat and still stay at that senior level who don't ever walk out into the fray um, can't ever really truly understand the disconnect. Uh, yeah. You know, the, 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 it's in a, in a meeting room, in a, in a, you know, horse-shaped desk where there's there's nameplates and everything else um everything seems simple and it goes to plan out on the ground things are unforgiving and they always will be uh and and it's and the job of the leaders is to is to make people understand um that you understand the gap is there and you're asking them to do things that may not bridge that gap but letting them understand why it's important um and, and and the necessary role that they're playing in things is critical to mental survival, especially in combat. Yeah, absolutely. I did not want to be that guy that spoke in the third person, you know, those bastards at the the company headquarters are making us do this or at battalion are making us do this. 
I wanted them to know that here is, you know, what we're doing. And I wanted to speak in the first person. I wanted to own whatever we were expected to do. You know, for instance, you know, when I was a platoon sergeant in Germany in 1992 to 95, I had a pretty good platoon because I had some great NCOs. I had great platoon leaders and everything. And all of a sudden we found ourselves as kind of the go-to platoon for a lot of things. And sometimes that took away from the things that Joe really likes, which is, you know, hot chow and, and, and rack time, you know. And I wanted to make sure that they understood the reason we are the ones that are being point, put out on this point uh, to kill the enemy reconnaissance and to give the commander the read of the battle is because who we are and what we are. And I said, and sometimes when you're really good at what you do, you're asked to do some, some things that others may not be asked to do. Now, remember, I was bringing lessons learned from combat to what I was doing in Germany. And this, we reverted in a hurry back to a peacetime military, Mark. But I still, all the things that I had learned that were made sense in combat, like, you know, wearing camouflage, um, wearing body armor, and, you know, conducting uh, observation posts and listening posts kind of things, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, I had early warning from any kind of enemy attack. Some things that had kind of atrophied with the greater military because we had reverted in a hurry to this peacetime military also because of this huge drawdown that we did. So when I would go through this, and I was really the only platoon in my battalion that was doing this, these kinds of combat-related things, I had people looking at me like, what is wrong with this guy? Is this guy crazy or something? You know, but I refused to waver on what I knew was right, even though, you know, other folks were looking at this like uh, pre-just cause and pre-desert storm where we were, we were a peacetime military. And we were a peacetime military again. But I told myself, just cause and desert storm validated to me that when you train for combat and you go through the rigorous efforts to simulate combat, you are going to be best prepared, even though you may have a force that has zero combat experience. If you train for the chaos of combat, you're going to be successful when the time comes. I'm convinced of that. Just out of curiosity, you're in Germany when um, Black Hawk Down in Somalia kick off. Uh, it's a story yeah. we've told uh, at least a dozen times here on, on the podcast. Having been to combat, were you sort of upset that you weren't able to be there? I'm sure you knew some of the guys or the units, at least in what they were doing over there. I mean, what was your feeling as you watched that from the sidelines? Well, so again, this goes back to delivering the why. Yeah. Whenever something like Somalia goes down, um, you know, and, and you see um, how, I mean, just one of the, one of the most terrific in terms of the level of intensity combat operations in the, in our history, you know, and you see, uh, just the heroics and the bravery of Task Force Ranger and everything uh, and what they did. Obviously, yeah, because you're not there, you know, there's a little bit of envy. But then understanding, hey, look, I'm here. I'm part of this mechanized infantry division that is here, you know, as a deterrent to any kind of Russian aggression, but also making sure that we can support any of this unrest in these former Soviet republics. So you under, I understood that. The worst one for me was in 94 when Haiti came up and the 82nd Airborne Division was on their way to conduct another combat jump into Haiti when the mission got canceled. And 
I was a little greedy, you know, having, you know, gotten that combat jump star from Panama. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to miss another combat jump, you know. And if only this operation was a year later, because in 95, I returned to the 82nd Airborne Division, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, when when you, you know, the more you understand the oath that you swore in terms of uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and the more our country gets involved in any kind of conflicts. I think as someone that is a combat service member, um, you want to be there for your nation and you want to be at that pointy end of the spear. And if uh, you don't go to combat and others do go, there's just that uh, normal professional envy that you wish they were, you were there with them. Now, again, none of us, as you know, wants to go to combat and get people killed and everything, but, you know, being someone that is a member of this warrior class, in the end, this is what we do. So, yeah, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, professional envy that I wasn't, you know, um, going to be, I wasn't going to be in Somalia or I, or I wasn't a Haiti and everything. But I realized, you know, hey, you know, I had my two combat tours already and I'm sure there'll be chances ahead. I just need to press on with the mission in front of me that I have. As I said earlier, it's hard to cover 37 years in a reasonable amount of time. So I do want to fast forward yeah. uh, just a little bit. But uh, in September of 2001, um, you would have been in the military for 19 years. You're at what rank at this point in time? I was a brand new sergeant major. I had just okay. graduated the sergeant major's academy and I was a so, brand new sergeant major. So on September 10th, are you thinking of 2001? Are you thinking, man, I got a year left. And I'm going to the promised land. I mean, did you start to see the end of your career or you had said, I'm going to stay as long as they're going to let me stay? Yeah, I had made the decision then. I had spoken over with Sandra, my wife, and I said, hey, look, and I had gotten some great advice from the sergeant major of the army at that time, a guy named Jack Tilly. And uh, Tilly sent him, said, hey, look, if you're going to stay in beyond 20, stay as long as you can, because you're going to continue to build a better portfolio for yourself post-military life, plus the training and education experiences you'll get at this operational and then strategic level are going to be huge in helping you with post-military life. So to the point is, of when I graduated from the academy, I started really studying what was going on in the world. Uh, and, you know, and I had kind of looked back and I was studying this uh, this terrorism thing, you know, all the way back to you know, the Iran hostage crisis, you know, the, the Beirut bombing, um, the, you know, hijacking of flight TWA 847 and, yeah. and Robert Dean Steven diver getting murdered. Uh, the flight Pan Am 103. Disco- yep. Over Lockerbie, Pan Am 103, Lockerbie, Scotland, uh, the discotheque in Berlin, you know, where Sergeant uh, uh, Ford was killed and everything. And then, you know, post, uh, Desert Storm, Cobar Towers bombing, the first desert, or excuse me, the first World Trade Center bombing in 93. 93. I was kind of focused on this terrorism thing, even though we were still looking at Russia as a primary threat, you know, at the time. And so when uh, uh, I knew I was, I graduated from the academy and I was working at Joint Task Force 6, which was the former, it's now known as Joint Task Force North. And it was the counter drug organization that supported yep. uh, it was the liaison with the military training law enforcement on counter drug operations. 
So I was operational in nature and of what I was doing then, but it was all domestic and it was counter drug, but there was kind of an overlap there, which caused me to study terrorism and everything. And so when 9-11 happened, you know, that morning I was stationed at, at, at El Paso at Joint Task Force 6 and I'm out on a run in the desert. And all of a sudden I noticed all these planes landing at the airport. I mean, they were coming in low and fast. And I was like, what in the heck is going on? So I ran back to the headquarters. And when I got into our conference room, the big TV was on and Tower 1 was uh, on fire and Tower 2 had just been hit. I knew right then and there that it was Al-Qaeda that was responsible because I had been studying Osama bin Laden and and, uh, Al-Qaeda and what they had done in the past. And then I knew that the world was going to change. And I knew that we were going to send a response. Uh, I didn't realize that it was going to be us sending troops to Afghanistan. And then, you know, shortly after that, that we would go after Saddam Hussein in Iraq and his weapons of mass destruction. But I knew we are going to get operational in a hurry. And so at that point in time, I was on the CSN select list and I wanted to go to a unit that I knew was going to end up deploying. And that was the 10th Mountain Division, who was already in Afghanistan uh, when I got pinned as, as a command sergeant major and I was on the, the road to move up there. So I thought I was going to find myself as a battalion sergeant major in Afghanistan, when in reality, my battalion and another battalion ended up going to Iraq while the rest of the division went to Afghanistan. So I knew then at 9-11 that we are going to be an expeditionary military from here for the foreseeable future. Do you get a sense at that point in time? Can you even tell that combat is going to be different than what you had experienced before? Um, well, terrain wise, you know, with Afghanistan and everything, absolutely. We knew that, especially up in, you know, the Hindu Kush and right. in places like Nuristan and, and things like that, um, that it was going to be a lot of direct firefighting. And everything. We didn't realize at the time the threat that was going to come from improvised explosive devices. Um, this was something that, you know, when the fall of Baghdad and everything, and we thought now, you know, a huge mistake in my opinion. We eliminated all of the security forces there, and and uh, and all of a sudden these roadside bombs started showing up, and all of a sudden this insurgency kicked off. So we didn't. We thought that this was kind of going to kind of be like Desert Storm with Iraq and Afghanistan. We thought in Afghanistan, we get Osama bin Laden, then we're done. Okay, we've we've captured the guy that uh, was the mastermind of 9-11. Actually, we already had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in, in uh, you know, under wraps and put him in Guantanamo Bay. And we were going after bin Laden and uh, Zawahiri as deputy. And uh, we thought, hey, we get bin Laden, this thing is over with, and uh, we'll go back to what we were doing before. Little did we realize that when we got involved in both of those operations, that we were in for the long haul. Because now, not only did we have to eliminate an enemy threat, but now we had to do nation building. And, you know, our military is not set up to do nation building. And so... Uh, the elements of national power, you know, our, our di diplomacy, our economics, our information and our military all had to come together to try and get after this thing. But we realized then and I realized 
this ain't going to be over tomorrow. And we are going to be doing multiple sets and reps of rotations into both Iraq and Afghanistan to get this right. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to divert this to a philosophical conversation because we, we could have a conversation about nation building for days upon days, but you know, and, and look, we can all Monday morning quarterback this thing a million ways to Sunday, right? Like that's yeah. not, I don't think that's a fruitful exercise. What I do think bears at least some discussion is the idea you talked earlier about the why, right? And, and yeah. nobody even stopped to think at any point in time about the why we're doing this. Like the goal of the idea on its merit that we were going to install democracy into another country that hadn't been a democracy for 2000 previous years seems sort of ludicrous on its surface. And, and, you know, call it bravado, call it stupidity, call it a combination of both. We were grand enough to believe that we could do this because we're the greatest military in the world. And, and we are, but there's a lot of factors that we didn't take into play. Um, and I, I want to fast forward, but I want you to stay in the mindset of where you were as a CSM, because obviously you had these level of conversations at the highest level of our government with people who are in the room making decisions with the highest levels of our government. At, at any point in time, are there people in the room even having the conversation of why and, and what do we really hope to achieve? And are these goals attainable? All the things that we go through on a basic military decision making process, right? Writing a simple op order for squad tactics, we use that same premise. And you have to wonder, as laughable as we do, it is that we do it so repeatedly and we get annoyed that we do it, is it even ever even done at the highest levels? Yeah. So, you know, Back to your point. Um, <laughs> there was a lot there, I know. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. So when I first got to Iraq in uh, 2003, and I was part of the 1st Striker Brigade going in, and we were replacing the 101st Airborne Division. So I was able to spend uh, a fair amount of time with General Dave Petraeus, who was the 101st Airborne Division commander at the time. One of the things he used to say all the time in meeting with U.S. Uh, diplomatic folks, you know, the L. Paul Brammer administration that was in charge of the uh, the U.S. presence there and everything, he would say, how does this end? He would keep saying, how does this end? And people just kept giving him kind of the loser salute, you know, that, you know, okay, it's, it's going to be, you know, the Iraqi people are governing themselves. But I think to your point, we spent too much time looking at the Iraqi problem set in the Afghan problem set through a U.S. lens. Yep. And as you just described, thinking that we were going to, you know, put um, democracy in place as we know it. And, uh, and, and we realized uh, our mistake in a hurry. But as I continued to move up through the ranks, you know, um, one of the things I wanted to make sure is that we understood that this was a long haul and that we weren't going to have success overnight. And for instance, you know, I went back to Iraq as Surge Brigade Number 4 with 4th Striker Brigade 2ID in 2007 and 8. And I think you know, anytime a, a brigade-level organization or whatever goes into combat, um, they, they take on this idea that they're there to fix everything that the people before them couldn't fix, and they had the master plan of how to win the whole war, you know. And I, I would say we were no less, you know. And when we got over there and I realized that the key thing to, to a 15 month deployment was going to be executing 
proper fighter management, meaning that we weren't running the men and women into the ground with, you know, every night going after targets or every day doing attacks and everything. And so I, I tried to make sure that I was the guy that kept it in mind. So when we started planning an operation and we were moving a battalion or company icons, oh, we're going to have them do an air assault into here. They're going to take down this high value target. Then they're going to go over here. And I would have to stop the staff officers and say, hey, hold up. Look underneath that icon. There's about 500 soldiers there that now we're talking about four straight weeks of hard combat and everything. And if we don't give them a break and we don't give them some downtime, we're going to erode their readiness and lethality in a hurry. So I, I learned that this is going to be a long haul and that we were going to do multiple sets and reps. And we needed to have interim kind of objectives that we could attain so that we could best prepare the next organization to come in and replace us. We weren't going to win at all. And I saw this in Afghanistan when I was the Sergeant Major of the ICF Joint Command. When I would look at commanders and they would have a, a mission statement of defeat the Taliban. And as you know, a, the doctrinal term defeat means that that enemy has no ability to do anything. They don't have any weapons. They don't have any kind of uh, resources. And most importantly, they don't have any uh, ideology to continue the fighting. And I said that we will never get the Taliban defeated. So we needed to use terms that the troops uh, could understand and were more amicable, like disrupt, deny, deter, those kinds of things. But again, the U.S. bravado, oh, we, we're here to fight and win. Oh, I got it. We're here to fight and win. And that's what we're, we're trained to do. But we have to understand that you're not going to defeat that ideology in 12 months. You might defeat the Taliban fighters, but they're going to continue to go to Pakistan, get some more, bring them back after the winter's over, and you're going to keep fighting. So the point is understanding um, what were the situation we were in and what we could, uh, you know, realistically accomplish in our combat operations for that year. And then how do we make it better for the unit that's coming behind us? And how do we continue this momentum? That's what I kind of continued to make sure that the commanders I was advising were focused on. Not this, okay, in this year that we're here, we are going to be the ones that are on the cover of Time magazine that we ended the Iraqi insurgency or we ended the insurgency in, in uh, Afghanistan. I think we, we learned that over time we had to be realists. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's why there's an argument. Instead of fighting one 20-year war, we fought 21-year wars because every time we rotated a new unit in, they did their own twist, their own little nuance, their own little philosophy. And, and you know, we never bothered to think of it from the other side. Like the Afghans and the Iraqis must be like, what the hell? No, nobody from America does anything the same way. We, every year we have to just keep changing stuff. But, you know, and, and the other thing of this, uh, which we never bothered to, to look at is psst, if ideologies were so easy to kill, America wouldn't be here 245 years later. They're Absolutely. not easy to kill. Um, so, you know, again, much longer conversation for a much different time. That said, you know, um, you de you deployed as a as a squadron, you know, CSM, and then you deploy, obviously, as a brigade CSM. Um, obviously, you're going to sustain casualties and take loss. Is it different this time around in Iraq um, and then after in Afghanistan than it was in Grenada and or Desert Storm? Yeah, so in Panama, um, you know, the, the minute I hit the ground in Panama and we expanded the lodgement, 
you know, we hit our assault objectives, we expanded the lodgement, and we started moving out. We met resistance there. And, uh, you know, one of the infantry lieutenants came up to my armored uh, reconnaissance vehicle, and he comes up to me and he says, hey, just let you know, we're, we've already lost an American. Um, so within the first hour of fighting, we had lost uh, Alejandro Manrique Lozano, was killed in action in Panama. And so that kind of hit me. Wow, we lost a guy. And then uh, when I was at one of our follow-on objectives on Tinehitas Hill, you know, one of our killed in action, uh, Jerry Scott Davies, was uh, being uh, evac'd out and was on the helipad up there. And it's the first time I saw a U.S. corpse that had an American flag on it, glint tape, and had that 82nd Airborne Division patch. So that kind of hit me, you know, and it stuck with me that this is brutal and unforgiving. And so as we prepared for our first deployment as a squadron CSM, you know, I, I kept sending the message that the enemy gets a vote and we have to be ready for this. The enemy gets a vote and, you know, that's just the way it is. We are going to be best prepared to face the threats in front of us, but the enemy gets a vote. And, you know, that first deployment uh, during Iraqi freedom, you know, I lost four people during that deployment. And when I came back as a brigade CSM, I call it the worst day of my military life, the 19th of July, 2007. Um, we had been in combat uh, just short of 100 days. And, you know, as the brigade tactical operation or the TAC, you know, myself and my commander, we had been in six firefights already. And on that day, we got hit by an explosive form penetrator that killed one of our PSD, Corporal Brandon Craig, and severely wounded our fire support officer, Major Danny Dudek, and then slightly wounded others. And so I don't think when you, you hear about or you see the first American killed in action soldier that you ever forget that. But every time it happens again, um, it just reinforces how brutal and unforgiving combat is. So I was prepared for it mentally and emotionally, but still you have to go through it, you know? And uh, um, again, during that, that operate, you know, as search brigade number four, we had 54 killed in action, which meant uh, 54 flag draped coffins at ramp ceremonies, along with 500 severely wounded amputees and burn victims and, all of this. So I think you prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for that. But in the end, every time it happens, you have to go through it. And it, and it, it hurts every time. I mean, how do you, you know, uh, look, you were kind of built for that moment, right? I mean, as, as a NCO, you, and you had spent 20 years grooming yourself for uh, the positions to lead. But at some point in time, I mean, at least for me, you know, it's just human nature. Human nature takes over. Do, do you ever pause and and begin to even say, even if I could articulate clearly the why, the why isn't worth it at this point. When you're when you're at ramp ceremony number 10, number 15, number 20, number 35, number 50, are you ever starting to think this is the, the, the loss and the cost of this are starting to be better than the outcome? No. Bigger, bigger than the outcome, I should say. No, I never did because during that same 15 month period, um, we had killed over a thousand insurgents. We had killed or captured 250 high value targets, which was the most by any brigade combat team 
during the entire Iraqi freedom conflict. And I saw the progress we were making on the ground. And then here's the other thing is if you, if you know you, you can't turn it off, that you have to continue to go, then you have to continue to get back up on that horse and go out again. I remember on 19 July 2007 when Brandon Craig was killed, um, I went back to my room that night. I'm the brigade CSM, and I'm trying to understand that this young man, I knew his parents, um, you know, I know his parents very well still today, and I knew that in less than 24 hours, they were going to get the worst news of their life. And here I was wrestling with how they were going to deal with this. And then all of a sudden I get a knock at my door and it's my uh, duty NCO. And he says, hey, look, we lost another soldier from 2nd Battalion, 1st Cavalry. And, and so I realized then that I, as much as I wanted to grieve for this kid that was on patrol with me every day for 100 days, had been in my vehicle for training and everything, and, and I knew his family and everything, that I had to focus on what was going to happen tomorrow and what we needed to do to make sure we didn't have any more casualties. I think in this, uh, this may be, you know, just, you know, John, but I think the minute, you know, we start um, focusing more on reflecting the bad stuff that's happened, the more we're going to open ourselves up for more bad stuff to happen. I, I had to, I had to get myself in a mind frame to make sure that every day I promoted the physical, mental, and emotional toughness needed. So every day that you know we had a casualty, and especially after 19 July, the next day, I wanted to make sure that the soldiers saw me in the gym, that I was getting my workout in and getting ready, that they saw me prepping my gear, and that I was checking my NCOs to make sure they were checking the troops' gear so that you know we could go back out. And I even pulled our patrol together, and I said, Listen, I understand we lost one of our own today. We had one severely wounded. We've had some slightly wounded folks. I said, but understand this. We're not going to let the enemy win. And if all of a sudden we say it's too dangerous to go out and all of a sudden we confine ourselves to here, we have conceded the terrain and the atmosphere to the enemy and we lose. We're going to get back on our horse tomorrow. We're going to go back out and we're going to take the fight to their ass. And we're going to keep showing them that they cannot break U.S. and coalition resolve. Now, right? Like run through a wall. I'm with you. 100 percent. Been there. I've had that same speech with my guys. And while, uh, you know, being in my mid 20s and full of piss and vinegar and, you know, not without wife and kids and everything else, you know, that all seemed grand and fine. What I realize now and, and there is some true to. You're 100% right. If you get in reflective mode while you're in the middle of it, you're, you're hustling backwards. You're going in the wrong direction because you're not yeah. going to be able to stay focused. 100% agree. But that doesn't mean that the events don't compound for you and for others sure. over the course of time. Why we are where we are with mental health and PTSD right now. And it's interesting because I had the conversation with my wife the other night and you've met her. And we talk about some of the things that I'm going through. And I don't know why things are coming up now. 10, 15 years later that I didn't deal with before. I don't have that answer, but I do know from doing this podcast and talking to enough people and doing enough reading, everything that we put in a compartment and stash away during our combat time, that that doesn't mean it goes away. It's still in a compartment. It's going to come back out 
and you have to be ready. You know, some people aren't ready to deal with it. So I ask you, while you were in the gym the next day, compartmentalizing, which is what is necessary to survive in combat, have you begun to even open some of those compartments again and, and dissect what is there and what you all had to go through? I'm glad you went there, Mark, because uh, this is really what I wanted to talk about. So I continued to, you know, put stuff away and I continued to focus. Even when we got through with that brutal 15-month deployment, I knew that now it's time to come back, decompress a little bit and get ready for the next one. And and then I just continued to focus on the mission. And I'm talking 11 years later. Now I'm the SEAC. I've been traveling all over the world. I come home and, you know, I come and tell Sandra, I said, hey, hon, we're a year out from retirement. We need to start getting ready uh, for the transition. And she goes, well, I think you need to go see somebody. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, in a year from now, this Pentagon thing, this SEAC thing, this, you know, being the senior guy in the DOD, it's all going to be gone. And then it's just going to be us. And I can't deal with you and this anger that you have all the time. Here I was, I thought I was just what a Sergeant Major was supposed to be, you know, some guy hard on standards and discipline and everything. But I didn't realize until I went to therapy. So I, I make an appointment at behavioral health and I go to my first appointment with the attitude of appeasing my wife. Okay. And I went in there and the, uh, the provider that, you know, talked to me, her, her first name is Gina. As a matter of fact, she still, her and I still talk today, even almost three years later, it felt like she was ripping my head open and she was reading what was on my mind and everything. And what I didn't realize at the time, and she had kind of, you know, traced it back and everything that this kind of stuff started with operation just cause. And for 30 years, I had been in denial and I had been compartmentalized. And all of a sudden, therapy was like a drug for me. But my initial thought after she diagnosed me with PTSD is, I have to walk out of this, this clinic here in the Pentagon, and I've got to go and tell fighting Joe Dunford, the chairman, uh, General Joe Dunford, and General Mad Dog Mattis, Secretary of Defense, that I'm in therapy for PTSD. And that was the longest 100-meter walk I ever met in my life. And what I realized is neither one of them thought it was a big deal. I mean, and Mattis, I, he even said to me, good, I'm glad you're getting help. Now, when are you going back to Yemen to let me know what's going on with the truth? <laughs> you know, my point in all of this, Mark, is I had been in denial and you don't realize it, it, that you are compartmentalizing things until finally you accept it yourself. And so for almost three years now, I've been in therapy for my PTSD I will tell you, a simple trip to the grocery store for somebody like me is a deliberate combat operation. I walk into the Safeway grocery store. There's one way in, one way out. So I know that, you know, all of a sudden I'm channelized, you know, all those memories of combat come in. You walk down the aisle, the shells block your peripheral vision. People are behind you and, you know, and you, you don't have eyes on them. Somebody has a cart sideways and now you have a blocking obstacle blocking your way. And here I am, you know, racing to find a position in a point of dominance, a support by fire position where I have eyes on everybody. 
So that my wife I wanted can, some can, damn Oreos from the from aisle three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm so glad you brought that up because so many of us are in denial and we think that it's a sign of weakness and stuff like that. But in the end, you hit it. You you hit it best. It is human nature. You cannot go through the bad things that happen in combat and that kind of brutality and not having a, an effect on you. And I use the phrase now that my trips to the grocery store or me sitting in a restaurant with eyes on all doors and everything, these are the abnormal reactions or the normal reactions to the abnormal shit we've been through in combat. And that's okay. I don't want so to such room. an advocate. I don't walk into a room without scanning the entire room, looking for points of egress and entry. And the first thing that goes into my drill six is is if if shit goes down, where am I going first? Right, yeah. like it's just it, it's it's natural, you know. Um, and and I remember when I got home from Iraq for my first deployment, um, you know, not having my pistol on my hip was the worst feeling in the world. And I remember I. You know, I was back in Maryland. I, I, there was no, you weren't allowed to get a gun back then. You know, I live in Georgia now. Anybody can get a gun. Um, yeah. But I never had one. But I left the house with multiple knives on me everywhere I went because I felt like I needed to have some level of protection. You know, I'm walking down the street. Like, I get Baltimore can be a tough spot, but, you know, where I was was not a tough spot. There was no, and I literally had to have a therapist tell me, Mark, you're, you're, there's no reason to act like that. Like you're not in a dangerous situation going to get a burger at a bar like you're not going to be attacked theoretically you're not supposed to and you have to kind of recondition yourself to think that way but we are so trained um because of what we've been through to always be at a heightened state of awareness and and i i don't think that we realize that even that exercise that we go through just mentally doing that when we walk through the room still is slowly grading on us and degrading us into a mental position where we're not supposed to be absolutely Absolutely. You know, when I got ready to retire here, I have, even when I was the SEAC, I lived on Fort Myer, the most secure base on the planet because it had the chairman of the Joint Chief Staff, the Army Chief of Staff, uh, the vice chairman. It had all of these senior four stars on it. But even then, I locked my doors up at night. You know, if my wife wasn't in the house with me, I'd sleep with the lights on. You know, I'd have, you know, non lethal and lethal stuff around me. And then when I retired and moved, to where I'm at now. I'm in a gated community. That was a must. I needed to be in a gated community because I needed that layer of defense, you know, <clears throat> and then, you know, um, the level of security I have on my house, the cameras, the non-lethal and the lethal stuff, all of this is born out of this being prepared. And I think, you know, going to a restaurant to get a burger or going to the grocery store, it's not so much that we're afraid to go in there. We're afraid of what we don't know when we go in there and that we always want to be best prepared, which causes us to be hypervigilant in what we do every day. And to the lay person, it may seem like there's something wrong with us. And yeah, PTSD is a condition, but in the end, it is our normal reactions to the abnormal stuff that we've been through. And so I, I think the more and more we have to accept that this is part of who we are. Now I will tell you, since I've been in therapy, um, I'm still vigilant, you know, like you just described and everything I do, but I'm not as hyper vigilant, you know, and, and it's allowed me to sleep better and everything being in therapy. So yeah, I'm with you, brother. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm just starting to go through all this now, you know, and it's uh, having these conversations and, you know, it, it gets a little bit easier each time you, you go through it. But for some reason, there are certain things that just hit you in a different spot that you're, you're not prepared for. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think my biggest fear is, isn't that people wouldn't understand, I, I guess, as much as that they don't believe me if that makes yeah. sense. Like they, it's, and I guess it's born out of understanding, but it's like, you know, why is all this coming up now? Or, or, or like, I don't understand like why, you know, you, you didn't deal with this after. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of these things. I, I don't have the answers. I'm, I'm literally wading through it all. As you're asking me the question, I can't tell you what the other side of the river looks like because I'm still in the water. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you, brother. You know, I, I I've had conversation with veterans, you know, a guy that still, you know, he's been home from deployment for months, but feels more comfortable sleeping on a cot in his garage than in the bed next to his wife. And he's more comfortable eating MREs in the garage than having a home cooked dinner with his wife. I said, this is going to take time, but it's a process you have to go through. And, you know, and then talking to his wife, hey, look, you have to understand that he's, you know, and I hate using the word safe space because, some folks nowadays use this safe space as, you know, you know, some room in a, in a university or something, you know, but a safe space for us is wearing combat gear loaded down with weapons and the enemy's barking at the door, you know, which to the layperson doesn't make sense. Some of us, you know, we feel more comfortable in Iraq and Afghanistan because we know we, we are in a, an environment where the threats are real but we're armed for them. We're trained for them. And we're surrounded by like-minded people that are prepared to get after it. If all of a sudden bad happens back here in the States at a restaurant, a grocery store, we're not around a lot of like-minded people. It may just be us and our family. And, you know, and all of a sudden we feel more vulnerable and hence the, you know, carrying knives with us or, you know, having a pistol because, you know, and I, I'm with you, I've reached down. I don't know how many times and if my nine millimeter wasn't there I'm like oh man now I'm vulnerable you know so I just think why this is why I focus so much in my retired life with making sure that veterans have purpose and the more they have purpose the more they can deal with the abnormal stuff they've had to go through uh, from combat and everything and that means also being in therapy that means being enrolled in VA healthcare. Or if they're a retiree, being enrolled in TRICARE with their family so that they are, have these resources that they can get to to help them work through all of this baggage that needs to be unpacked from years of serving their country and uh, fighting and killing the enemy. Do you think back now, again, hindsight being 2020, uh, you talked about, again, just getting the gym the next day, just charge forward. You hop from one assignment to the next assignment to the next assignment. And I did the same thing in combat. You know, you, you get shot up one day. Okay, mission again tomorrow. Here we go. Um, hindsight being twenty twenty, I, I think I would have benefited from taking a knee every now and then. Let somebody else handle the next mission. You know, decompress for a little bit. Get, get your head back above water. Do you do you look back on it and wish that maybe you had some of those moments where you you could have taken a knee or somebody who said to you, "Hey, John, take a knee." Hundred percent, absolutely. You know, but again. If uh, you think of the environment back then, just cause and desert storm, well, just cause especially, 
you know, we were a peacetime military and 95% of the military did not participate in that operation. Right. And if all of a sudden you come back from something like that and you say, Hey, look, I need to take a knee. Oh, well, this guy can't hack it. You know, that would, that would have been kind of the attitude then same with desert storm, you know, and everything. So I think, um, the, the attitude we have now that it's okay to seek help and everything, we should have had that same attitude 30 years ago and we should have focused on it back then. Um, and, uh, and absolutely 100%. I wish I would have had the wherewithal to say, all right, I need to take a knee. Okay. And it's, it's okay. I'm going to go see, you know, a behavioral health specialist or somebody or a, a combat stress person, you know, um, I think if we would have focused on this more over the past 30 years, we would have a better understanding and we'd have better resources, but more importantly, we would have a reduced stigma from seeking help for PTSD. Not that I want to end this conversation because I think it's super important, but I, I kind of want to just go back to, uh, you know, the assignments that you went through. Again, you were the, you were the ISAF uh, Joint Command Sergeant Major. Um, you end up going to uh, U.S. Forces Korea there. Uh, so you have all these kind of high-level CSM positions. When do you first hear about being the SEAC? Is it, is it something that somebody had mentioned that you were in the running for? Is it something that said they were looking, hey, and you raised your hand, I want to do it? Like, how does that whole transaction take place? Yeah, so um, when when you get to the nominative level, working for general officers, um, you you really your record is looked at looked at by a panel of senior enlisted leaders, and so for me, you know, I, I was continued to put on slates, and when I was at U.S. Forces Korea, which was a sub unified combatant command, um, somebody came up to me about two years in. As a matter of fact, it was the current SEAC at the time, Marine Sergeant Major Brian Battaglione said, "Hey, you know, you're eligible to compete for this job." And I was like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, and and I really didn't pay attention to it until I was about a year out and Bataglia reached out to me and said, hey, I want you to put your name on this slate. And then I told my I talked it over to my wife and I said, OK, we'll do it. And but then I realized I was among 10 of the most senior enlisted leaders in the Department of Defense that were competing for this job. All branches, so, right? Army, all branches. Army, Navy, Marines, gotcha. okay. Air Force. Yeah, all branches. And so I, I went, you know, I my records got looked at and then I got a call said, hey, you're one of the three finalists that uh, General Dunford is going to interview. And I thought, OK, well, you know, so then what I did then, and I think this is important for senior enlisted leaders is. You know, Dunford, when he took over as a chairman, he wrote a letter to the force and he focused on three kinds of things, you know, restoring joint readiness, uh, continue to build lethality and uh, and continue to take care of people. So I took what he was focused on and I said, how do I develop areas that will complement what he's doing, but will get after the traditional things that sergeant majors get after people, training, welfare and things like this. So uh, um when I interviewed with him, I kind of laid that out for him. And, uh, you know, two weeks later, I got a call and said, and he says to me, um, hey, Sergeant Major, how's everything going? I said, well, it's going good, sir. And he said, well, and this is what I love about General Joe Dunford, the consummate statesman. 
you know, 40 year Marine. He says, well, if you and Sandra are up for it, we would love for you to come and be teammates with me and Ellen up here in Washington, D.C. That he didn't he didn't say, hey, I'm selecting you as the SEAC or anything. He made it out as a team effort with me and my wife and him and his wife. And I thought, what the most eloquent way to tell somebody that you've been selected. So I realized then, okay, I've got to do four more years because I tell people when you go to Washington, D.C., you get sworn in for a job, whether you're the SEAC, the chairman or the president, you're doing four years. And uh, but I knew then now I'm going from the Korean Peninsula now to the world. And I knew I had to open up my aperture and I had to focus on still what I was all about, delivering the why to the troops. And so um, that meant that this next four years, I had to study all the time. I had to continue to uh, be knowledgeable on all service activities, you know, for all the services. Even though I wore an Army uniform, I had to know as much about the Air Force as I did the Army and the others. And what that did is it caused me, again, a leader that is supposed to validate their credentials every day to make sure that they're doing the things they need to do to lead the men and women in the military. But also it caused me to grow and develop. And all of a sudden I found myself in these strategic conversations with these senior four-star generals, members of the office of the secretary of defense with the administration and with the, the state department and others. And all of a sudden I started getting confident that I can deal with this kind of stuff as an enlisted guy. And so one of the things I focus on now is promoting enlisted folks that have left the military are now competing in the corporate world or those that are still serving that are serving at the strategic level. Because I think when we look at enlisted folks, there's a place at the table for us uh, alongside the officers in uniform and outside of uniform. So you are the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You just say it out loud and and you feel a million miles away from the ground level. Um, When you're trying to deliver the why, I mean, like, look, there's basic for, for, and I don't want to confuse the non-military folks listening, but you're at a strategic level. That's different than the operational level, which is different than the tactical level. And we talked about that gap before and closing that gap and the gap between strategic and operational and operational and tactical. And the further up you go, the bigger that gap is. That why, those three letters, they don't only stretch so far in closing that gap. Do you feel like in this job, it's harder to deliver a why because you you can't literally, you know, reach out and touch the people on the ground the way you could as a as a brigade CSM or, you know, even even a squadron CSM? Yeah, it's 100%. It's a lot tougher. But I armed myself with a national defense strategy developed by the Secretary of Defense, the national military strategy, how we're going to use our military forces by the chairman. I armed myself with that. And I was on the road 270 days out of the year. Now, I couldn't get to every troop out there, but I went to places that, you know, the garden spots that nobody wants to go to, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Niger, Colombia, all the places that we had contentious stuff going on. I, that's where I spent a lot of my time. And in, in the Pacific, you know, in places like South Korea, Indonesia, uh, Singapore, places like that, I wanted to make sure that I hit as much as I could. And then, you know, I used tools to help me deliver that why, like social media. 
I, I have had a huge presence on social media and, you know, and continued to deliver messages that were focused on the crises that were happening at, the, at any given time. And then every day I continued to learn and get better through my joint staff, you know, the J5, the J7 and folks like that. And then I would continue to deliver this through mediums like this, even as the CAC on a podcast or something like that. And then ultimately through our education systems, whether that was at the Sergeant Majors Academy or some of our joint uh, courses or whatever it was, I tried to make sure that I was constantly delivering information. But more importantly, Mark, what I did everywhere I went for that nine months out of the year, I listened more than I talked. I wanted to be able to give the pulse of the force to the chairman and the secretary of defense and the administration. Here's what the troops are saying at the tactical and operational level. So as much as I was educating them on the why, I was learning from them to give the pulse back to my bosses so they knew whenever we started making decisions at the strategic level, this is the kind of impact it was going to have at the tactical level. And so it was kind of a two-way street. But again, it was a constant grind for four years to make sure I was getting after that. Um. In that experience, I'm curious um, of an example of something you maybe talk about when you talk about the pulse of the force. Like you, you have to know because you were at that level at one point that there are thoughts that go through your head. I have no idea why we do this. I have no idea why, why the Army and all of its infinite wisdom or the Department of Defense and all of its infinite wisdom does X, Y, and Z. Was there something repetitively that you heard or was there a preconceived notion you had thinking that, you know, when I get to this job, this is one of the things I'd like to fix? Uh, can you kind of put some you know, examples out there of repetitive things that maybe you didn't think that the force was focused on you, and you learned about or something you thought was always a problem that you were able to put your hands on? Well, so some of the things. So anywhere I went to visit some of our elite special operations forces, I'll tell you, I landed in Misrata, Libya, and I get off the aircraft and, you know, one of our elite Navy officers, you know, special operations officers, a lieutenant commander, the first thing he says to me, hey, what's the foreign policy that guides us for why we're here? I know the military action. I'm here to kill ISIS. But he was kind of saying what Petraeus asked 20 years earlier on how does this end? You know, me, me and my guys are here fighting our butts off, but how does this end? And I knew then I had to understand the strategic level, the direction, why we had troops where they're at. One of the key things I remember, I went to southern Somalia. Um, I had went to Kenya and I was with, again, another, uh, the, our elite Navy special operations forces, the most elite. And I was in Nairobi, Kenya. And then I made my way over into Southern Somalia. And a couple of weeks before I had been there, there was an attack on a Kenyan ranger camp by Al-Shabaab and the U S special operations forces that were there had, uh, the, they didn't have you know, the uh, authorities to be able to attack large scale formations of Al-Shabaab fighters unless they were conducting some kind of hostile act. So there could have been 300 Al-Shabaab fighters with weapons sitting in a patrol base. But if they were doing anything hostile, we couldn't attack, didn't have the authorities to do that. And by the time we did get the authorities to do that and conduct an attack, they were already gone, you know, because it would take days to get those presidential authorities. So anyways, I go over there and I visit with this 
ODA that was a part of this operation where they had to abandon the camp and the Rangers really got their asses handed to them. And so as I started talking to our special operations on the ground, I realized we didn't have the proper joint fires that they needed. We didn't have the proper intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance stuff that they needed. The golden hour medevac was way out of whack. And recovery assets were three and a half hours away in the country of Djibouti. So I sent a message to Secretary Mattis and General Dunford and basically said, here's what we either give them the assets they need or we send them a ton of body bags because we're going to lose some Americans down here. I said, if we can't give them the stuff they need, then let's give them the authorities they need to conduct, you know, uh, attacks on these Al-Shabaab mass formations. And so then President Trump changed the uh, authorities in Africa. And now commanders on the ground had the ability through their combatant commander, not through the president, to be able to attack what they perceived as hostile targets, change the dynamic completely. So that was just one incident where me going on the ground and having a direct line back to the senior leaders had an impact. But some of the things that I tried to get after every day was every time I would go to Congress or I would go to cabinet meetings or whatever, I realized that, you know, there was a disconnect between Washington, D.C. and what the troops were doing on the ground. And I wanted to make sure that the troops knew that we we didn't forget about them. And this is kind of when, uh, you know, uh, I realized that Washington, D.C., some places they were looking for ways to deter foreign terrorist fighters by giving them a job, you know, instead of uh, allowing us more authorities to attack and kill them in places like Syria and places like that. And I realized we weren't looking at this right. And that's when I said, I need to send a message to the troops so they understand that we are still, we understand the severity of the conditions they're fighting under and that we have their back. And that's kind of when I called out ISIS and I told them they had two options. They could surrender or die. And, uh, you know, never did I think that this message about beating the enemy to death with an entrenching tool was going to go global or viral or anything. I, all it was was to inspire the troops that we understood what they were going through, and we had their back. And little did I know it was going to go viral. And next thing I know, I've got, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi criticizing me. I've got CNN, ABC, and all these other networks criticizing me. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, I'm being scrutinized by people in the Pentagon and everything. And uh, and it was it was not a good time for me at that point in time. My point in all of that is, these were the techniques I was using to deliver the why to the troops. And as you said, Mark, it's pretty hard to deliver the why when you are layers and layers away from the troops on the ground. The methods I used and the techniques I used were effective in delivering that why. But in the end, uh, there was some backlash from me doing it that way. But if I had to do it all over again, I would do it the same way because it was effective. Not only did it give the pulse to the chairman and the sec def, but the troops more and more knew what the heck they were supposed to be doing out there. And they understood why they were doing it. I'll, I'll ask this question bluntly, just because it's who I am. You can choose to answer it as diplomatically as you like. Uh, how screwed are we because <laughs> of our government leaders? I mean, I, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but I just mean the bureaucracy in our government. Um, and when you see it at the level that you did, 
Um, and, and the way we operate, um, you'd like to think everybody is there with, with America's best interests at heart and their constituents' best interests at heart, but politics is messy. It's a contact sport. Um, you're dealing with these people all day long who have motives that aren't necessarily um, serving the greater good. So when you see that, does it sort of, I don't want to say tarnish your view, but I, I guess twofold, you know, is it as bad as it looks from the outside looking in? And um, how do you view, you know, what you saw from a soldier's perspective? Yeah, it, that's a great question. I, I will tell you, um, you know, I think, you know, um, some some leaders uh, in government try to dumb down uh, the potential threats to our nation, you know, and uh, I'm speaking specifically about China right now and the level of threat that China is to our freedom, our homeland and our way of life. And with their one belt, one road initiative around the world where they have influence in Africa and South America, in the Middle East and other areas and their predatory economical practices and the things that they're doing. And then the adventurism by Russia um, you know, where they've got troops massed on the Ukrainian border, they've already annexed Crimea, they've caused unrest in the eastern part of the country where there's a war going on there, and then them being in Africa, them being in the Middle East, and uh, and then, you know, the everyday potential response to a crisis that we would have to execute against an Iran or a North Korea, and then that threat of terrorism that hasn't gone away, Um the American people don't necessarily need to have a rosy picture painted to them that because we're not in Afghanistan anymore, you know, that Al Qaeda and, and uh, ISIS and the Taliban aren't threats anymore. We, they need to know that they are a very viable threat and that we as a nation have to continue to work together and come, you know, and make uh, strides to make sure that we're not vulnerable in the same with, uh, you know, with China and Russia and the same with Iran and North Korea. So I think when politics get involved with national security and, uh, you know, all of a sudden that can be a very dangerous combination and it could cause us to be vulnerable. We could lose competitive advantages and, uh, you know, and then, you know, our grandchildren and great grandchildren could suffer from it. I think in the end, um, we as the United States of America, along with our partners and allies, can't be afraid to tell somebody like China and Russia, you know, that uh, we're not going to put up with what you're doing and, you know, send messages to the Iranians and the North Koreans that if you do something stupid, we're going to bloody your nose. And certainly we have to continue to advance on making sure that there's no spectacular terrorist attacks in Western Europe again, and certainly not in the United States of America or in Canada or, or any other place like that. We can't sit around and, and think that talking nice to these kind of uh, insidious kind of threats is going to get them to change who they are and what they do. It's going to be take action. As you know, our president is talking today to Vladimir Putin. And I will tell you, Putin is a very savvy individual, a career intelligence officer. He knows how to manipulate people. My hope is that our president will put a knife edge on him and will kind of tell him this is exactly what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Because if we continue to molly coddle and, and, you know, and just play games, 
somebody like Putin and somebody like Xi Jinping will manipulate that for China and Russia's purposes and will constantly look to build advantages against us. So, uh, yeah, I, I, there were times when in my job that up there that I was concerned with some of the things. And again, the first year I was up there, it was about this ISIS jobs program for foreign terrorist fighters that come from affluent countries and, and families in Belgium, France, and places like that, when I realized we weren't looking at the problem right. So in the end, uh, you know, you hope that these leaders uh, in government see that, you know, what the American people expect and, and what we need, and they make the best decisions to it. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to question what their motives are. Sure. Uh, you've been out of office now for just shy of two years uh, out of the office of the SEAC. You've been in the military or around the military for nearly 40. Um, how are we better? How are we worse? How are we different? Uh, you don't have to necessarily characterize it as better or worse. That's all contextual, right? I mean, yeah. we have better technology now. We're better equipped. I mean, you know, than we were 40 years ago. So clearly we're a better fighting force. But just from that standpoint, what you've seen over the course of your career, particularly when you, you look at it from the SEAC level, because it's such a macro view, because that's all yeah. you've studied on, what we do well versus what we don't do well. You, 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 can't, you can't take a 10-foot a, a view. you got to take a 10,000-foot view. Yeah. So I think that our greatest competitive advantage right now is how we've developed the structure in our leadership and management ranks. And what I'm getting after is how we built this non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps in our military from where we were a conscription force in Vietnam. Shortly after that, we professionalized, became an all-volunteer force, and then we started building non-commissioned officer and petty officer education systems to where we're at now in over 20 years in Afghanistan and 18 years in Iraq, where we have continued to build on the ability of non-commissioned officers to lead, to execute disciplined initiative within a commander's intent, apply agile adaptive practices and thinking, and solve problems, neutralize threats, and accomplish missions without being micromanaged or being told the method of how to do it. As long as it is in keeping with the law of warfare, our ability to allow this mid-level kind of leadership to blossom and grow and to make decisions, that's very powerful. And when you look, if we've got a fight in the mountains of Korea on the Kaesong Heights, or if we got a fight in Eastern Europe or wherever it could be with China, you know, or in the plains of Iran, this may start as a high-end decisive action combat kind of activity, but it will, you know, all of a sudden degrade in a hurry to low-level kind of conflict based on leader initiative and things like that. And that's where we will have the advantage because of what we do every day to train our NCOs and our petty officers. We have the absolute best NCO Corps on the planet, and it's a model for every other military to include the Chinese now on how they want to get to. And as long as we have that competitive advantage, I'm confident that we will be successful at the tactical and operational level in future conflict. Again, strategically, as we've talked about, if the foreign policy doesn't match the military action, which it kind of didn't in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're going to have struggles. And, and if we don't understand the people, the threat, and our partner forces 
like we did in Afghanistan, we could be there for a while. But in the end, at the operational and tactical level, as long as we have those empowered, trusted, non-commissioned officers leading the way, we're going to be successful. That's one thing I'm extremely proud of. Now, one thing that concerns me now is uh, we're putting a lot of time and effort in this people first kind of thing, um, which I I think is important. Um, In order to build, as you know, Mark, cohesive, lethal ready organizations, then everybody on that in that organization has to be treated with dignity and respect. They have to feel that they're making an impact. They have to feel that they have the ability to grow, develop, and reach their untapped potential. So I think we got to get better at building cohesion and getting after what we call these corrosives of sexual assault, sexual harassment, you know, suicide, racism, extremism, and everything. But what we can't do is allow that to consume what we're doing every day. And we have to remember why we're here, and that's to fight and win our nation's wars. And we can't forget that. And that we've got to continue to focus on being more lethal, more fit, more focused, more ready. And that, as I mentioned the last time you and I were together at that event in Atlanta, I said, if we made an assumption that we're in an era of persistent peace, that would be a hugely dangerous assumption that could cause us to get people killed because, you know, complacency will set in and those uh, pacing challenges or threats will have competitive advantages. So we can't forget who we are and what we are as we continue to build on cohesion and take more care of our people. We can't let that um, override what our primary mission is, and that's to fight and win in a brutal and unforgiving profession known as being a member of the warrior class of the United States military. I 100% agree with you. The fact that our NCO Corps is strong, we have better soldiers, better airmen, better Marines than we've ever had before. And part of me says, thank God, because, and remember, this is an officer speaking. Uh, I, I do think we have a leadership issue, uh, particularly at the senior levels. And we're in this weird stage right now where the most senior folks come from a different lifestyle, different mentality, a different sort of upbringing in the military than some of the youngers do. And that disconnect, I think, is a major problem within the military and within our organization, um, you know, and, and again, without sounding boastful or arrogant, you know, I, I think of myself as a sort of transformational leader in the sense that I understand the audience I'm talking to is not the audience I grew up with. The people right. I'm choosing to lead are not the people that I served with. And so I have to do things differently in order to reach that audience and, met, and let them understand and make them understand where we need to go. And it is incumbent on us to, groom the next generation of leaders for the organization, not how we were groomed, but how they need to be groomed to lead the organization that is in a constant state of flux more than I think we ever have. Look, you've been around for 40 years. Have you, have you seen anywhere near as much change as you've seen in the last five to seven in an organization? I would argue you probably haven't. I'll defer to you on it, but the leadership component of the military and the backbone of it, again, I, I, I think NCOs make great soldiers and great airmen, great Marines, great sailors, whatever. But the leaders at the top, to me, at this point, we've, we've got a gap that we've got to close and got to fix. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I say this all the time, and uh, General Dunford used to say this all the time. You know, the, con- the um, nature, excuse me, the character of conflict is going to be ever evolving. And, and that's what we're seeing with cyber and space. Um, 
you know, re-energizing the nuclear uh, command and control kind of stuff and everything, those kind of uh, emerging war fighting domains, you know, they're, you know, now with hypersonic weapons and, and uh, all this stuff and, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum and all this stuff, all of this is evolving the uh, character of conflict. But the true nature of conflict, I think, is never going to evolve. And that means that it's the will of one uh, people or organization or institution or nation against the will of others um, in, in who's going to prevail in that kind of fight. And I think the, the, the foundations that we focus on, the physical fitness, the mental and emotional and technical and tactical readiness, the education, um, the training, the experiences that we give men and women, I think those have to continue to transcend any change in the character of conflict. So I agree with you that, uh, you know, we've got to continue to, you know, leverage technology, leverage industry. We have to continue to look at things on the emerging battlefields that are, that are going to be different. But in the end, it's going to take these capable men and women that it's always taken to be able to do that. So the more we grow and change, the more we have to keep the foundations the same, in my opinion. Because in the end, um, as we've talked uh, over here about what conflict is all about, in order to endure the kind of brutality and suffering and all that comes with com combat, the physical, mental, and emotional fitness and readiness of the force is what's going to get us through that. You had four years as the SEAC. Um, did you want to serve longer or they tell you that you're done after four and it's a one-shot deal? How does that work? Well, I think I was done. I mean, it's a four, four-year deal. But, you know, General Milley came in. He was the new chairman. Uh, I was hoping he didn't ask me because he had only been on the job about four or five months. And I had been in the SEAC position for 43 months. I was hoping he didn't ask me to stay on. Uh, because it was it was time for me to retire. And after four years, I said, somebody else needs to come in and take this position. And the current guy, the Air Force guy, CZ Colon Lopez, he's moving out with it and, and doing great things. Um, but again, I think at that point in time, with selfless service being your attitude, um, if somebody would ask me to stay on, I would have had to have huge thoughts with that and talked it over with my wife. But in the end, I probably would have declined because my four years was up. I was going to be at one month shy of 38 years of active duty service. And it was time for me to move on and do other things and let those coming behind me come in and uh, do the job. Uh, those other things that you were heading towards uh, PME hard consulting, the company uh, consulting firm that you founded and opened, what's that about? And what was the kind of Genesis of it? So when I got ready to retire, I didn't want to grind. Um, I wanted to focus on the things that I felt were my strengths. You know, now I say that, you know, I'm on the road all the time, but uh, um, I wanted to focus on developing leaders and developing people in the human performance domain. So I wanted to focus on education, um, physical, mental, and emotional health, and continuing to build people to be greater leaders. So I started my own consulting company, and now I consult or I'm an advisor for eight different uh, businesses. Plus, I'm constantly being asked uh, to, to go and speak at military organizations, but also to civilian businesses. As a matter of fact, 
tomorrow I get on a plane and I head to Tucson, Arizona to do some organizational leadership with a business down there. So um, PME Heart Consulting is all about that. And that's what I focus on now. Along with that, I also started my eTool Nation kind of apparel and gear line, which is geared to get after the, uh, you know, supporting the warriors and the warrior ethos. And it was all based off of, um, you know, what I said about ISIS and everything. And now eTool Nation, everything I get from the apparel line, kind of like what uh, Killcliffe does, everything I bring in, I give out to foundations. So for instance, uh, in two weeks, I'm going to Iowa and a great foundation called Downrange Excursions that takes uh, those service members suffering from PTSD, gets them out doing things in the wilderness, hunting trips and stuff like that. I'm going to make a huge donation to that organization. But also because I'm in the corporate world now, I wanted to support uh, organizations that help those in the corporate world. So I'm also going to make a huge donation uh, to the Lighthouse for the Blind. So all the things that I bring in with eTool Nation, I want to put back in, into uh, foundations that take care of those that need help being taken care of. So that's kind of what I'm doing with that, you know, and PME Hard pays the bills so that eTool Nation can be supporting the nonprofits and everything. How's retirement treating you? You're finally learning to gear it down, take a knee a little bit? Oh, yeah. I, uh, so I, I work out of my house, my office. I, I, uh, I make my own schedule. I do everything. My wife and my youngest son are a part of my business and everything. But I'm, uh, I'm enjoying life, Mark. Uh, I was asked the other day, I was speaking at an event up on Joint Base Lewis-McCourt, the 7th Infantry Division, and one of the senior NCOs, do you miss it? It's asked me if I missed it at all. And I said, absolutely not. I miss the camaraderie of being around like-minded individuals, you know, but I do not miss the bureaucracy. I don't miss the grind. Um, and now from my position where I'm at now as a retiree, I'm still giving back to the institution that gave me so much. I'm just doing it in a different role now. And also I can wake up in the morning if I decide that I don't want to do PT today, which doesn't happen very often, or I don't want to do any kind of work. I can say I'm not doing anything today. I'm spending it with the wife or the grandkids. So I'm enjoying life and I'm taking it uh, every day and and just enjoying it. Um, Just out of curiosity, I'll ask, uh, was working in the Trump administration as crazy as it looked from the outside looking in? Um, It on the surface, it looked chaotic. Yeah. Um, And there were times it could be chaotic, uh, especially, you know, in my quarters at Fort Meyer, I had a secure compartmented facility in there where I had, you know, my top secret email. I had secure email, non-secure email. But every day I would get up and check, you know, my uh, top secret, secret and non-secure emails. And I would check Twitter to make sure to see if there were any executive orders put out over Twitter. (laughs) Now, having said that... Now, having said that, I will have to tell you, though, that, you know, President Trump made NATO a stronger organization because he forced those NATO nations to up their GDP spending to defense what the United States was doing, which made it stronger, made it more of a deterrent to Russia. You know, he pulled us out of uh, some trade agreements with China that hurt the Chinese uh, economy a little bit, which hurts their military machine. He brought those businesses back home that strengthened our economy at home. 
And, you know, I think at one point in his administration, the unemployment rate was the lowest it had been in 50 years. And unemployment for African-Americans and other minorities was the lowest it had ever been. So there was a lot of good things that were happening um, that you had to get below that layer of chaos and Twitter speak and, yeah. and uh, you know, bluntness that he had and everything. And I will tell you, my last trip as the SEAC was to Afghanistan. And it was President Trump was there. So General Milley and I went there and President Trump was there. And I got to saw how President Trump was. He was only supposed to be on the ground for four hours. He ended up spending like nine hours on the ground. Every soldier that wanted a picture, he took a picture with him. He went and spent time with the second Ranger Battalion there, handed out combat awards and Purple Hearts and everything. And, and a couple of times the Secret Service were telling him, hey, Mr. President, we got to go. And he finally told him, hey, look, I'll tell you where we're going to go. We're going to stay here. And I'll even tell you, when he got ready to come and talk to the troops, he grabbed President Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, brought him into this hangar on Bagram Airfield that had almost a thousand troops in it. And he gets up there to talk to the troops and he gives Ghani a chance to talk to the troops too. Just a very class act. So yes, there was chaos. Yes, every day you had to deal with something on Twitter or something like that. But you cannot take away from the good things that he did as not only the president, but as the commander in chief. And in John Wayne Troxell's opinion, we were much stronger as a nation and especially in military terms when he was the president of the United States. Sure. Amen. I mean, you know, uh, it's uh, I don't I don't know. You know, we, we don't dive much into politics in the show. And that's never even part of the, the conversation. Yeah. Everyone's allowed to have their own opinion on it. But um, it, it's always good to see when leaders take the time to spend, especially, you know, the commander in chief kind of leader uh, to spend time with, with the soldiers. Uh, it doesn't happen often enough. And we talk about that disconnect and that gap and it's incumbent on the people at the highest level to sort of close that because the, the ones at the bottom can't go up. The, the ones at the top have to come down. So I think it's, it's great that you were there to witness that. And certainly, um, you know, your time as a, as a senior NCO lends to that, you know, always, always looking out for Joe, so to speak. Um, other than all those other organizations you're working with, uh, anything else that, that we need to, to talk about from your standpoint? No, I just, uh, I just want the men and men and women in uniform that are uh, that are going to be watching this and they're still serving. Um, be proud of who you are and what you do. And uh, we may, in John's opinion, had an abrupt uh, exit out of Afghanistan after 20 years. But that does not take away from all of the gains we made in Afghanistan for 20 years and in Iraq for 18 years and other places around the world, wherever the United States military has been. We've made an impact uh, either on the threats uh, or the host nation or the people that were being oppressed. We've always made an impact. So be proud of who you are and what you do and keep striving for excellence and keep after the mission. And for those that have served, those veterans out there, God bless you for your service. Be proud of your service. Be proud of who you are and what you are. And it costs you nothing to seek help uh, if you're out there struggling. And last but not least to the families, that support our military and our veterans. We couldn't do it without you. God bless you all. And thank you all as well. And Mark, thanks again for having me today. It's been an honor to be here on the hazard ground podcast, brother. Oh, it has been an honor to be your 100th podcast. Since 100 in two years. That's right. So uh, 
we, we are as special to you as you are as us, but uh, I, I don't need to say anything further. Certainly appreciate your time and everything that you've shared with us. And, you know, as we always say, we end the, the podcast the same way. CX retired John Way Troxel. Thanks so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.